Can I just, has anyone been to the opticians recently? Yeah? Anyone not been to the opticians recently? I haven't, but um, I do remember going to the opticians. And you have to read that board of numbers, don't you? And if you're anything like me, then you, know, you start off pretty well. And then the further you get down, it becomes more of a, a fun challenge to see how far you can get without knowing actually any idea of what it's saying. So you start off with like A, Z, K, one, Chinese character, squiggle. And you sort of go further and further. And then the optician comes on, they've got those great big glasses, don't they? And they sort of hurt the top of your nose. And they put them on and they put the lens in and you think, oh my goodness, I was so wrong. I did not know what I was reading. And then you think, oh my goodness, how many car crashes have I avoided all this time? And how did I even get anywhere? I couldn't read any of the signs, and now all the speeding tickets make sense. And then hopefully, your response is then, I need glasses. Well, that's a little clue of what we're going to be talking about today, and how we need the right lens in order to make sure we don't avoid going the wrong way, having any accidents. So, I'll just pray, and then we can get into it. Father, just thank you for your word. We just love you, Lord, and we want to learn more about your word. Um, just pray that you'll give us the, uh, the lens of wisdom today, that you help us see what the lens of wisdom is, that we would be able to, to live and act as you would in our world, Lord. And I just pray that you'd speak through me, this weak vessel today, that you would um, speak your word, and that anything that's not of you would um, fall away so that um, that which remains is Christ. That which remains is of you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so if you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, hopefully it'll come from the screen, and I'll just read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Okay. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit of power, or spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or, the rulers of, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends, comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of God so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, so I've really enjoyed studying this passage. I feel like God's literally taken me through it this week, the depths of it. So let's look at the first part. It says, I came to you. So nice and simple, what does you mean? Who does you refer to? Well, this is Paul speaking, and he is referring to um, the Corinthian church. This is a Gentile church that Paul planted, and he describes them in chapter 3 as being infants in Christ. So actually, this church is very immature. They had some issues, and in terms of their spiritual growth, it's very, yeah, like I say, immature, and that is Paul's uh, biggest concern, their spiritual growth. And he likens them to that of a baby being fed on milk rather than solid food. And he says, when he came to them, he said, he did not come to them proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So let's make it clear before we go on. It's not that Paul didn't have lofty speech and wisdom. Okay? He was fully qualified to speak to them in those ways. Let's just look at a few of Paul's credentials. So Paul was the greatest missionary of all time. He wrote nearly a quarter of the New Testament. He was giving, given amazing understanding and revelation by God. And there's bits we can read in the Word where it says he was caught up to the third heaven in the Spirit, and there he saw things that can't even be spoken about, stuff that can't even, or that's not even written in our Bibles. And um, in 2 Peter 3, Peter actually talks about the wisdom of Paul, and he concludes that some of his writings are actually difficult to understand. So it's not that Paul wasn't able to speak to them in this way. He's more than qualified to speak to them with great wisdom and insight, but he instead decides not to do that. So something we see from Paul in his ministry is that he works um, with a strategy. He calls himself, later on in, in Corinthians, a skilled master builder. The goal was always the same, that people would know Christ, but the way he went about it was different depending on who he was with. So 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So later on in the book, Paul describes this church as God's field, So before any good farmer plants a field, he needs to assess the ground with which he's planting on, because Paul wants to make sure the foundations are firm. He's establishing foundations, and he wants to make sure that it's void of any weaknesses. And so here we can see Paul observing the church, observing the mission field, and forming a strategy based on his assessment. So what is his assessment? Well, the clue, sorry, is in the previous chapter... Paul has observed that the Gentiles demand wisdom. So in preaching wisdom and eloquent words and things like that, he's discerned that this would empty the cross of its power. Okay, Because the foundation has to be built on Christ and to display his glory above anything else. So salvation should not rest on the shoulders of man's intellect 
the shoulders of man's lofty speech because this would create a severe weakness um, in the foundations. Salvation must rest on the power of Jesus to save. You know, what if someone came along the next week and they didn't speak with lofty speech and wisdom? What if the foundations had been built on that and not Christ? Then these people's faith might have been shaken in a way because they're, they're, they're putting their trust in the, the, the delivery rather than the, you know, the actual core of, of the message. Um, so instead, he says, he decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So this here, Christ and him crucified, is what you're left with when you strip away all of that other stuff, okay? What you're left with is the core truth that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, this, Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, is the gospel in its most pure form. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul says that, spiritually speaking, the Corinthians are like newborns or infants. But let me tell you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, the Bible says you're not spiritually infantile, you're not a spiritual child, you are dead spiritually. Okay? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the penalty for sin is death. But... Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. God sent his only son who lived a perfect life and died the death that you deserve. Christ was crucified so that anyone who believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. The debt has been paid in full and anyone who believes in Jesus is set free from the curse of sin and death. So that, in essence, is the message that Paul was establishing with the Corinthians. And it's really important to understand that the gospel is a message. Okay? We as believers need to communicate the gospel in words. Okay? I'm not sure if you've ever heard the quote, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Okay? If you don't preach the gospel, if you, sorry, if you preach the gospel in anything but words, then it's not the gospel, okay? The gospel literally means good news. So we have to communicate the gospel as such in words, okay? Everything else then becomes the outworking of the gospel. But those things in themselves are not the gospel, okay? Now, we read Paul saying, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So the question I ask here is, well, why is he afraid? Well, Paul has deliberately made himself weak and therefore come to the Corinthians as a weak vessel, preaching a weak-sounding gospel. He says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Paul has removed himself from the equation. He tells us in the previous chapter that the Gentiles were actively seeking wisdom. That's what they wanted to hear. So in response to this, he purposefully does not come to them with that which they revere. Okay? All that remains, then, is Christ and the power of the Spirit. So I was trying to think of a, maybe a modern-day alternative. Maybe it's something like Paul going to 
um, a bunch of investment bankers and saying, I chose not to come to you with a flashy car and tailored Armani suit. Instead, I chose my old banger and a regular suit off the rack so that the power of the gospel would have its effect, that you would not put your faith and your trust in my apparent wealth and status, that it would be the power of the Spirit, the power of God to save. He says, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Paul actively chose what was weak in the eyes of man in order to display the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, to change a person's heart and mind. When we experience God, it's not just a mind thing. It's, there's, there's power. You are changed in an instant. You know that something has changed within you. There is, is a depth to it that goes beyond just learning. You know, lots of people know that Jesus died for sin. You know, that's, I think a lot of people know, but that doesn't mean they've necessarily experienced the power of the Holy Spirit to change and to bring them from death to life. And Paul says that our gospel came to you not in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts us of the truth. So Paul arms himself with a simple message and he fully relies on God to bring people from death to life. No man can do this. Okay? No one can resurrect the dead. No man can change a person's heart. Only God can change a person's heart. And this is a really challenging message, and it really flies in the face of how we would prefer to do church. It's so tempting for a church not to rely on the gospel, not to rely on power, but instead serve up that which the culture reveres to get people in the door, to boost the numbers. Things like entertainment, music, social justice even, good coffee, but there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm not saying there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with those things. You can keep drinking your coffee. But if those things are not accompanied by Christ and him crucified, then they are rubbish. They're absolutely worthless. You know, we can serve up good coffee, but if we don't preach the gospel, it doesn't matter. We can have social justice. We can have a great program. But if people do not know that Christ has died for the forgiveness of sins then, you know, there's lots of other charities who don't preach that and are doing good work, but it's not the gospel. It's not going to bring people from spiritual death to life, okay? God loves you is not the gospel if it's not accompanied with how he has loved you. God has shown his love to you by sending his son to die to pay the price for sin, your sin and my sin. The only way into the kingdom of God is through the cross. And that's what Paul knew. Any other way is, any other route is a weak foundation. And that's what Paul's trying to establish, that the foundation is Christ. And I personally find that quite encouraging because, you know, I feel like a weak vessel preaching a, a, weak, um, a weak message when I try and talk to people about God. We all feel that. And Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, also felt that. That should be an encouragement to us, that weakness is, um, is part of the package, basically. Okay. 
So God basically, he takes us to a field, he gives us a packet of seed, and says, right, go and sow it, go and sow that seed. And we know that if God doesn't pour the Holy Spirit on it, if God doesn't water it, nothing will grow. I think we sang, um, if the Lord doesn't establish the house, then the workers are working in vain. It's that sort of thing. If God doesn't establish it, if God doesn't bring it to life, then the gospel um, you know, will not come to life. We need the Holy Spirit. And despite this, despite this real, very um, real feeling within us, we need to fight the temptation of using carnal methods to try and attract people. The seed is perfect. We need to be secure. The truth of the gospel is perfect. God sows the seed. He gives us the seed. He says, go and sow it. And the truth of it, the seed is the gospel. The truth of the gospel is perfect. Okay? And we have to trust in the Holy Spirit to bring it to life. And when we labor in this way, it removes all doubt from anybody's mind that it is Jesus who saves, and not us, and not our methods. The last week, John, um, he spoke actually about the humility required to receive the gospel. But it also requires a lot of humility to give the gospel, because it relies all on Jesus It all is on the power of God to save. And ultimately, this is the firm foundation that our faith is built on. You remember the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock? Maybe not. My kids like that one. Um, Anyway, the rock is Christ, isn't he? The wise man built his rock on Christ. He is the firm foundation. So, that's verses 1 to 5. But I just want to summarize what Paul is saying. Um, and it's really important that we understand this. So what this passage in Corinthians 1-5 to is saying is not, you need know nothing else but Christ and him crucified. It's not saying that. What it's saying is if you do not know Christ and him crucified, you can know nothing else. Nothing else will make sense unless you know Christ and him crucified. So, as I said at the start, if we want to see properly... If we want to see with wisdom, we need the right set of lenses. And Christ and him crucified is the lens through which all scripture, all truth, everything makes sense through the lens of Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And that means that all truth leads to him, all truth leads from him. Jesus is the chief cornerstone through which everything is built upon, through, and in. And what Paul is doing with the Corinthians, having recognized their immature spiritual um, condition, and therefore the negative outworking of it, he's making sure that the lens that they're seeing through is adjusted back to that of Christ, that they would see through the revelation of who he is. Because as I said, the outworking then of the Christian life is established on that truth. So, for example, if someone comes up to you and says, oh, I'm really struggling in my marriage, our response to that person is not, well, brother, Christ and him crucified, because that is the core truth of it, but our response needs to be based on the core truth of it. It's not just, you know, I don't know anything else except Christ and crucified, and that's my answer. That is the core truth, and then our response becomes an outworking of the core truth. 
Okay, so you might look at, for example, how did Christ behave towards his bride? Look at what Christ did for his church, his bride, the church, and form a response based on that, based on the wisdom of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. And what he's doing here is he's speaking their language in reference to them seeking wisdom. Remember I was saying at the start that Paul said he became all things to all men that he might save some. So this is a little example of that for us. The Gentiles were after wisdom. And so he's saying, we do impart wisdom. And he's using that terminology in wisdom, but he's applying it to true wisdom, or even the embodiment of wisdom, which is Christ. And he's saying, the mature believers are able to recognize what we preach as wisdom. You're seeking wisdom. We do preach wisdom and the mature believers are able to recognize it as such. And when he's saying this, he's not saying sort of, he's not trying to put them down. He's saying, you know, along, among the mature believers, we do impart wisdom. He's, he's more kind of just trying to urge them on, trying to encourage them um, forwards. So let's just look at the mature. Who are the mature? Well, if we look at Hebrews 5, it gives us a great comparison of the young in faith and the mature in faith. And it says, you need milk, not solid food. But everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For, uh, my, I've lost page 7. Where's it gone? I can read, up, I can read from the front. Here it is. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead and internal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay. So the mature are those who have become skilled in the word. They have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. And they're able to distinguish good from evil. They have a doctrinal, under, a doctrinal understanding of Christ. So essentially, they're able to understand the word and they're able to do what it says. In James 1, describes um, a person who looks in the mirror and then when he goes away, he forgets what he looks like. And this is in reference to the word. When they read the word, they go away and they forget what it says. The mature are not like that. When they read the word, they take it in and they do what it says. Their faith is active. They're hearers and doers. And he says, Paul, the next bit, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So the wisdom he preaches is not of this world. So he's saying, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this world. But rather the wisdom of God. And as it says in chapter 1, the wisdom of God is Christ. And the wisdom of God, Christ crucified, is folly to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. 
and therefore not a wisdom of this age, because wisdom is not simply a concept or an idea. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom itself, true wisdom, is Christ himself. So, just like true peace is fulfilled in Christ, but it's not a peace of this world, true justice is fulfilled in Christ, but it's not justice of this world, true identity is fulfilled in Christ, but it's not the identity of this world, you know, peace, justice, identity, the world has those things. They have those things to offer, but the, the wisdom of Christ, the the peace, the justice, the identity of those things um, of Christ, heaven's version, it's not of earth's version, basically. Um, so for the investment banker, uh, Paul could have said something like, we do preach riches, but it's not the riches of this world. Okay? The riches we preach is Christ. The treasure of heaven is Christ. And Paul says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. So the hidden wisdom of God is Christ. And, and he was hidden to the world until he came as a man 2,000 years ago. And when you look at the Old Testament, Jesus is all over it. Everything in the Old Testament is gearing up to him being revealed. And there's this really lovely bit in um, Luke 24. And, and basically, a couple of disciples find out um, that the tomb is empty. And so they run to the tomb to find out what's going on. And Jesus meets them there, but they don't know who he he is. They don't recognize him. And and it says um, that he reveals all the scriptures in the Old Testament to them concerning himself from Moses to the prophets. And then he breaks bread with them, and their eyes are opened, and and they recognize him. And then he disappears from their sight, and they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures? Because when we see Christ, when we recognize him, the scriptures come alive. They come alive to us, and our hearts burn within us. You know, suddenly books like Leviticus make sense. And believe it or not, they can make your heart burn within you. Without Christ, the law, the Old Testament, can make some tough reading. But through the lens of Christ... The whole thing opens up, and what seemed like dry, dead religion becomes deep and far and wide and exciting. And this is why Christ is a stumbling block for the Jews, because the law is not just a bunch of regulations that God thought up one day, that they thought, oh, it'll be fun, I'll just get them and see if I can do this. The law is not God's law for man alone. The law is unto himself to point to his son, Jesus And God keeps his law, and it all makes sense through the lens of Christ. The wisdom that can be found in the law can make sense to us today in the 21st century. That's why Jesus is the fulfillment of it. When we, sorry, um, yeah, through Christ and him crucified, we can make sense of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus is the fulfillment of it, the object which it was established on and that which it points to. I was actually um, watching a video on YouTube a few, a few weeks ago, and there was a, uh, a Jewish rabbi talking to a Christian, and they were just having a chat. And 
the Jewish rabbi, I mean, he knew his, he knew his stuff, and he was saying all this stuff, talking about all the laws, um, all of the um, different traditions and stuff, and yet he couldn't see who Christ was. And it was, it was, I just found it tragic. I found it so sad that he had, you know, he knew his Bible far better than I would, and yet he couldn't see who Christ was. It was really, um, really sad. And the next verse goes on to say, none of the rulers understood this hidden wisdom or they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So the Jewish leaders and the Romans, the, the rulers responsible for crucifying Jesus, that's, that's Jew and Gentile, so no one is exempt. You know, they represent us all. We were all responsible for crucifying Jesus. Both were in rebellion against God. So had they known that the hidden wisdom of God the key, the fulfillment of everything, was in Christ and him crucified, they would not have done it. In their rebellion against God, they would not have crucified him. And when Jesus finally comes on, to say, um, on the scene, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. It's all pointed to me, but at the time, it had not been revealed. They could not see it. And this makes sense. In the next verse, when it says... As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I've done this myself, and we often take this verse out of context to encourage us about all of the things that God has planned for us in the future. But, look at what the next seven verses say. These things, God has revealed to us, okay? So we take this verse out of context in order to encourage us, but what we really should be saying is these things God has revealed to us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has planned for those who love him, but these things have been revealed to us. Jesus has been revealed. The mystery of God, the great hidden wisdom of God, Jesus has been revealed, and it's Christ and him crucified. Through Christ and him crucified, through putting our trust in the blood of the Lamb, we can know the hidden things of God. And then look, how has it been revealed then? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, this is some encouragement. Where has God put his spirit? Inside of you. Inside of every believer. So the spirit that reveals what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no heart can imagine, the spirit that searches everything, even the depths of God himself, has been poured out and lives in you. That's awesome. Now, we have received not, the next bit says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Now, this bit's important. That we might understand the things freely given. You know, it'd be, it'd be tragic if something was given to you and you had no comprehension of um, how good it was. How, um, you know, it's like being giving a gift. Yeah, it's like giving a gift to my son. 
And um, him going, oh, okay, I didn't, you know, I don't really know what it is. Um, he doesn't have the comprehension. He's maybe not mature enough to understand it. But the Spirit has been given to us in our infancy to understand the things that God has freely given us. And through him, through the Spirit, we're able to have the power to walk in what he's revealed. That's important as well. Not just comprehension, there's power to walk in it. You have been given the Holy Spirit. The mystery of God has been revealed to you. And if you take nothing else from today, can I just encourage you that you diligently seek after him that you might understand. As it says in uh, Ephesians 3, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints that what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Pick up your Bible and read it. Go to a quiet place and pray to the Lord. Read what he says. Listen to what he says. Go deeper after him and hunger after him. You know, it's uh, adoration on Wednesday. Let's, let's go after him together. You know, last time, last month was amazing. Let's, you know, let's pack the house. Let's go after him, him together in his spirit, in passion for the Lord. And it's powerful when we understand the things of God. Whole movements throughout church history have broken out simply from people understanding glimpses of who Christ is and glimpses of what has freely been given to us. And there's maturity to be had for all of us. And through his spirit, we can all go into it. Not laying again a foundation, but going into maturity so that we might become skilled in the word of righteousness and that we might have the power to do what it says. That we might understand the wisdom of God and walk in it. That we would understand when perfect peace says, love your enemies. That we would understand when righteous judgment says, forgive as you have been forgiven that we would understand that true riches says it's better to give than to receive. Jesus is fulfilled in all of this. He is the prince of peace. He is the judge. He is the treasure of heaven. And the spirit empowers to walk in the truth. Everything the world is looking for is found in Christ. And Paul says, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we need to allow the Spirit to be our teacher. When you look at the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Every single one says, listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And if you know, if Jesus says something seven times, it's really important. The Spirit should be the common denominator when it comes to understanding God's Word. And then our Christian leaders have been given to us to equip us, to help us 
as they themselves are led and guided by the Spirit together. I literally had this experience this week. At the start of the week, I thought I had my talk down, I knew what I was going to say, and um, you know, I thought it was going to be all right. And then, you know, John helped me, he walked through some stuff with me, um, and he's like, oh, you know, I think you're missing a bit here, and you think you're missing a bit there. Through missing those bits, we would have ended up in the completely wrong direction. And I thought to myself, I need glasses. I need some glasses. <laughs> I just literally thought I was going to stand here on Sunday and just read the passage to you and say, okay, well, there you go. But the Spirit is faithful. He is able to reveal the truth to us. I didn't have to go to Specsavers. Once I realized um, the mistake I was making, I didn't have to go to Specsavers. I had the Spirit living in with me through the guidance of our leadership to go into the truth. It is the same with you. We have leaders to help us as we all go together in the Spirit into all truth. If we do not have the lens of Christ and we're not being taught by the Spirit, then we'll be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. And we'll also become fractured as a body. This is what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were worldly. They were disunited. We need the lens of Christ with which to see things. And when we invest in spiritual things, we're able to understand spiritual things and we're able to discern them. The natural person, it says, does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? So what this is saying, basically, is that the carnal or natural man is unable to understand these things. They, they actually seem stupid to him. They don't make any sense, and therefore they are not fit to judge the spiritual man. The carnal, worldly man cannot judge the spiritually minded man because they are coming from two completely different worldviews. So if I was to say to the person struggling in their marriage, for example, well, look at Jesus. He laid down his life. Have you tried that? Have you tried laying down your, your life? Have you tried denying yourself? Now, the spiritually minded man could look at this and see that as wisdom, whereas the carnally minded man may well say, are you kidding me? Lay myself down? That is utter foolishness. I'm going to go find a younger model, which is, of course worldly wisdom and not the wisdom of God. And I'm not trying to paint, you know, non-believers and believers with the same, um, you know, non-believers with the same brush. I'm just trying to give an example of two opposing worldviews. But this is the exact reason why things are imploding in our culture. It's saturated with the wisdom of this world and it rejects the spiritual things of God. We so easily trust intelligence just for intelligence' sake. But without uh, the Spirit of God, intelligence is absolute foolishness. I don't know if you ever see this when you're watching TV and they'll, you know, wheel out the, the scientist or the doctor, someone who's got lofty, um, you know, clever-sounding speech. If that's not founded in, in, in Christ, then whatever, it doesn't matter how well they present it, how lofty, how uh, wise it's sounding, if it's not founded in the wisdom of Christ, it is foolishness. 
It's absolutely foolishness. And it's a tactic that the enemy will use to disarm us. We'll watch something and you think, well, he sounds intelligent. He must be right. But if we are not founded in the, the wisdom of Christ, through Christ, then we will be disarmed. We'll be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. And remember, the Bible says that demons have doctrines as well. So we need to be rooted in our Bible through the Spirit so that we are equipped with the sword, which is the word, so that we can discern right and wrong, so we can discern good and evil. That's why it's important. And finally, the last verse sums up why it is important. What is the point? We have the mind of Christ. This is why we must not be saturated by the wisdom of this world, but instead by the Spirit of God through the lens of Jesus. Because in that, we develop the mind of Christ. Romans says, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we have the Spirit of Christ, we have the wisdom to function in this world. Having the mind of Christ means knowing the best thing to do in your workplace. It means knowing when to turn the other cheek or when to turn a table. It means you have the wisdom to do what's best for your family. Today is Mother's Day, and Lois and I were literally having a conversation this morning, and she was saying, I've never been in a church where the mothers are so amazing. And it is down to women who are pursuing the mind of God, women who want the best for their family, who seek the Spirit by the leading, sorry, seek the Lord by the leading of the Spirit that they would do what is best for their children and they will reap spiritual rewards from it. Our women, our mothers in this church are amazing. And I, I, yeah, I personally remembered it when I first came here. There was, you know, something different. In all situations, though, we must have the mind of Christ through the instruction of the Holy Spirit that we may be mature believers and not overcome by the wisdom of this age. Now, lastly, next week, in chapter 3, we'll be looking at all the kinds of things that will result in not having the mind of Christ. So, make sure you don't miss it. And I will finish in prayer. But, before I do, if that is new to you, if Christ and him crucified is new to you, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know him as Lord and Saviour, then, you know, John's there, I, you come pray with me, Any, find someone who you think may pray with you, I'm sure everybody in this room will be happy to pray with you. Um, yes, so if someone comes and prays with you, then pray with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, let me just pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have revealed the wisdom of God to us, that in Christ we have the wisdom of God. And thank you, Father, that through his spirit we can understand what that is. We can understand the things that are hidden to this world. Father, I just pray that you would take us deeper in your word, that you would equip us to be your hands and feet in our generation, Lord, that we would not be overcome by the wisdom of this world, that we would be saturated in the spirit of God, 
that we could bring many, son, many people to glory, Lord, that people would know who you are, that they would be let in on the hidden wisdom, the secret that is revealed in Christ. We pray that people will come to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. I, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> Go grab your kids.